Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start at the end of chapter 3 and spend the bulk of our time in chapter 4. As I was uh, preparing this morning, I, I was thinking about Israel way back in Isaiah's day, 650 years B.C., whatever it was. Uh, and, and Isaiah was in a very interesting climate politically, culturally in the nation of Israel. Uh, he was given a word by the Lord at one time to the people, and, and it was essentially in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, <laughs> you see a, a very hard-hitting passage where Isaiah is given this instruction by God to, to go to the people and to tell them, look, I don't want to hear. <laughs> I don't want to, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm weary of your sacred assemblies because y- your hearts are wrong. I'm weary of you spreading your hands before me in prayer because your hearts are wrong. I, I'm, I'm weary of, uh, of the fact that, that you, you want to offer sacrifices which are for sin, but you're in sin. And I mean, this whole passage on, uh, I, I remember doing jail ministry and I taught this passage one time uh, at, at the jail, and I titled the message as I got finished with it, Machine Gun Fire and Grace, <laughs> because it's very hard-hitting, but in the middle of it, in the middle of, of God saying, look, I will judge your sin, his heart just comes out, and, and he says, come now. As he's got this railing indictment against the nation, he says, come now. Let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they could be white as snow. If you consent and obey, you could eat the fat of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, what a hard-hitting passage that is. And folks, we're in a hard-hitting passage in First Thess this morning. Um, not hard-hitting from the, the standpoint that it's condemning for Christians, because we do not stand condemned, but it's very sobering. So as we get into this, in our previous studies in First Thess, we've looked at what it was that brought Paul and Silas and Timothy to the city of Corinth. Uh, on, it was on Paul's second missionary journey. As you see on the first slide, uh, they'd been traveling across the empire. They started out in Antioch in Syria uh, months and months before and uh, had worked their way across. No, we don't have time to go into all the detail there. Uh, you can look back in our series in the book of Acts if you want to check that out. It's in Acts, uh, what, 15, 16, 17 in that, that area. Anyway, uh, they started out there, and they worked their way across the empire, across uh, Galatia and then Asia. They wanted to go into Asia to evangelize, and God said no. They wanted to go to Bithynia and evangelize. God said no. So they ended up going across to Philippi and then to Thessalonica, way over in Macedonia. So they were there uh, as they as they got there. They we're told that they were able to minister to go and to bring the gospel for three Sabbaths. They were there for three weeks before trouble arose, and we don't know how long. We know that they were at the synagogue for three Sabbaths. They may have been there for a month, maybe two at the most, but they weren't there very long before the Jews got pretty sideways with them and they stirred up trouble. And Paul and, and Silas, we're told, had to leave. And so they went off to Berea. The Jews found out that they were there. They chased them down there, started the same thing, trouble, persecution. 
So Paul, by himself, left, went down to Athens, and then over to Corinth. It was there um, that as Paul was waiting for them, as he now was in a posture of saying, I don't know what's going on with this church. I was there for a very short time, but long enough to know that the Holy Spirit had been poured out in significant measure. It was a massive work of God had started in a very short amount of time. And so Paul would be there and he would be wondering what's going on with these people. Now, before we move on to the second slide, I want to point something out that I've added onto the map here. And this is something that... uh relates to things that took place about 40 years after the time that we're studying now. Uh, remember, this is about 51 or so A.D. and on out to about 90. Uh, John, the apostle, would be in Ephesus. He lived in Ephesus the latter part of his life. And, and then he was banished, exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, Emperor Hadrian had done a persecution and he was part of that. Anyway, while he's there on Patmos in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus appears to the Apostle John and he dictates their letters to seven churches. The ones that have a yellow dot here on this map are those seven churches. And I say that because, folks, we need to constantly be aware that these are not just Bible stories. These are real events that happen in real places with real people. And we have the advantage of being able to come and to come to God's word and have it inform us as to what's going on in that day. Now, there's not a direct correlation with the, the set letters to the seven churches that were, that John talks about in Revelation two and three, uh, with what we're seeing in first Thessalonians, but there is a general application, a general understanding that we can extrapolate from that that applies to the church at Thessalonica, even though it was long before, but that applies especially to the church in our day. And we're going to look at some of those things this morning. So uh, two churches, uh, the, I should say one church, the, out of the seven churches, there was one church that had a good report card. The rest, six of the seven, they had serious things going on with them, uh, especially the church at Laodicea, which was essentially the apostate church. It was, it, it had a name that it was alive, but it was dead. Uh, Jesus says there, you're blind and wretched and miserable and naked and poor. And he says, I advise you to buy gold from me. Gold being symbolic of righteousness because they thought they had some and they didn't. So anyway, as we're going along here, I, I just want to keep that in the back of our minds because we're going to see that there are some things that are happening in our day that come to bear that we can relate back to those seven churches. Now, as Paul is going, in, in, he's, now he's at Corinth, and he would be evangelizing. He met up with Priscilla and Aquila, a couple of tent makers, and, and he was a tent maker as well. So he moved in with them, got established in the city, and he began to evangelize with them to evangelize that region in that time. So that's what's going on with him in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a major city in the Greek province, or the Roman province of Achaia. Alright? It would be the hub for evangelizing that region. In the same way that Ephesus was a major city in Asia, and it would be the hub through which Asia would be evangelized. We see that in the book of Acts, that people were, during Paul's time at Ephesus, where he had the school of Tyrannus, and there was a lot of stuff going on there, he was there for a couple of years, 
and that he would reach out then and send people out and they would evangelize the region where these seven churches come from. Likewise, in Thessalonica, Thessalonica in Macedonia, which was north of Achaia in the northern part of what's modern day Greece, Thessalonica would become a model church. We've looked at that here in First Thessalonians, where they were now a model church. The Holy Spirit had been poured out in such measure that people were getting on fire for the Lord, and they were, again, reaching out to others, and the whole region of Macedonia was now being evangelized. I mean, this happened very quickly, but again, when God was pouring out his spirit on these people, there were great things that were going on. Paul, in the meantime, gets to Corinth, and he is greatly concerned because he doesn't know any of this. Um, He's at a place where uh, he's just like, What's going on? I don't understand. I, I had I had to leave so quickly. He has great ongoing concerns because of the welfare of this infant church was in question in his mind. He, they were under heavy persecution. He knew that because he was part of the persecution that was coming. So he gets to Corinth. He's wondering what's going on. And at some point, we see here in slide two, that probably months after Paul arrived, that Timothy and Silas would rejoin him at Corinth. And it was there that Timothy related back to Paul all that had been going on in the Thessalonian church in his absence. So as a result, we looked at last week, Paul was overjoyed. He was just filled with joy uh, because he, he came to find out the Thessalonians were actually doing well in the face of, in light of, in spite of the fact that they were under great persecution and experiencing great adversity in their lives. So now, equipped with Timothy's report, he writes back to the church in what would be his first inspired writing. Uh, I believe that First Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul writes back, and this would be the first of many. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, 14 if you count the book of Hebrews. That's a personal opinion of mine. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't know who the, the writer was. I think it's distinctly Pauline, but I might be wrong. At any rate, he wrote a lot of letters. And the reason why he wrote this letter was because, as we saw here in First Thess, he didn't have the ability because every he said, I wanted to come back and I wanted to see you over and over again, but Satan hindered me. As a result, he has to write. As a result of that, we get to sit here this morning and study this divinely inspired word that, God, that Paul wrote, uh, inspired by the hand of God. So, He's overjoyed. He's excited. He's writing back to these people. The first thing he does as he writes is he defends his ministry and his motives because the people had come against him after he left. Oh, yeah, he was just a flash in the pan out of here. Yeah, yeah, that Paul. And, and Timothy had been defending him to the people. We can understand that. Also understand that Paul was writing to defend himself to them as well. After that, he shared his concerns for the ongoing persecution that they were enduring as well as the exceptional joy. We looked at that last week. It's the exceptional joy that he shared with them in hearing of there being a model church, walking in love, both inwardly among one, among themselves and outwardly to those around them. Um, great model for us to look at. So as we get into chapter 4, Paul shifts from the broader view of what was happening with the Thessalonians, what was happening to the Thessalonians in that church, in general, and he begins now to reinforce the teaching that he had given them while he was with them on what it is to live individually in Christ, what it is, what this Christian life looks like, what it's about. 
And so remember, too, as he wrote, there are no chapter breaks. This is a continuing flow of thought, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, absolutely, but it's a continuing flow of thought. We have chapter breaks to make it easier for us to parse through. But in the original, there isn't one. So in order for us to catch the flow here, this section actually starts in chapter 3, verse 12. We'll read the the rest of that and then get into the first eight verses uh, of chapter 4. And and then we'll talk about, go through verse 12 later on. So in in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound, hang on to that, in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So Paul ends chapter 3 by saying their hearts should be established blameless in holiness. Then he uses the the word holiness three more times in chapter 4. When you see the word sanctification, it's the same exact word. Holiness, sanctification. We'll talk about that. We'll connect that together here in a minute. He says in verse chapter 4, verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received it from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? This is, he's, this is very clear. He's very, he's, this is God's will for you. Your sanctification. Again, that's the word, the same word for holiness. He says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now that word is one word in the original. It's the word porneia, or we get porn or pornography or whatever from that. And we'll talk about that more as we go as well. He says that you should abstain from porneia, sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, uh, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So, hard-hitting passage. In verse 3, he says it's God's will for your sanctification. Uh, he uses it again in verse 4 when he says, every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, and he's talking about his body, in sanctification, in holiness, honoring God. In verse 7, he says, God didn't call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. So, as I mentioned, holiness is the same word for sanctification. So what does he mean? Now, and let's unpack the word a little bit. I, I'm a word guy. I love I love doing word studies. I love breaking them down, and we're going to do that here. So the Latin word for holy is the word sanctus. Uh, and that's where we get the word sanctification. All right? So literally, if you wanted to look at it in, in, in American ease, the word would be holification. In other words, you are being made holy. If you are being sanctified, you are being made holy. All right? Holiness is commonly defined as being set apart or being separate. God is holy. Uh, understand, the nature, one of, part of the nature of God, one of the attributes is that he is holy. He is, he is pure as relates to infinity. He is infinitely pure. 
Uh, and we're going to get into the doctrinal aspect, but then we're going to get very practical here in just a bit. So he's set apart from everything that is not God. That is what holiness means pertaining to God. Now in verse 2, Paul commands, and he, he definitely commands, that God's people must be holy by being set apart from sin. Holiness, therefore, is separateness that entails moral purity. So when we are called to be holy, he's saying you are being called, you're being commanded to live a life of moral purity. Now, this third slide that we have here, I'm going to talk about doctrinally, and then we're going to talk about practically speaking. Doctrinally, the sanctification of the believer is in three realms, three parts. There's positional, that which happens at salvation. Progressive, that's that which we experience every day. And ultimate sanctification. That's what, that's what will happen when we get to heaven, when the curse is removed. We will be utterly sanctified, utterly holy. Now, that reflects the past and the present and the future aspects of our salvation. All right? So in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and again, we don't have time to go there, but I'll summarize. Paul notes the reality of positional sanctification as a believer is in union with Christ, having been justified At the moment of our conversion, the moment of our salvation, we are justified, declared righteous, because we now wear the righteousness of Christ. We have been justified. We have also been sanctified, past tense. What does that mean? It means I was declared holy because of the work of the cross. I am declared pure. And so when God sees me, he sees me in righteousness and holiness already. It's not something I'm working, and and, and we'll we'll get to that, but it's not something I have to try to achieve. It's something that has already happened. Now, positional and, I'm sorry, he describes how the sanctification is worked out progressively also, and that's that middle one that I show here on on this slide three, that uh, or slide four, that in the life of the believer, that we walk according to the Spirit, and we are progressively being made more holy. We are progressively being sanctified. Okay? Got to understand that. That's the theological aspect of it. Now, positional, the initial transaction, and ultimate, the end of it, when we're in heaven with the Lord and the curse is removed, those things are gifts. We don't do anything for those. That's part of the gift of salvation. When he gives us the free gift, that's what that's part of the package, is what we get. They're entirely a work of God. They're not the work of man. We don't earn it. That's why he says we're not we're we're saved under good works, but we're not saved by our works in Ephesians. So uh progressive sanctification, on the other hand, requires the cooperation of the believer who's commanded through the work of the Holy Spirit to live differently, to live set apart. And folks, we are called, commissioned commanded to live, set apart, to live different kind of lives in the world around us. So practically speaking, for true believers, living a life of moral purity is not an option. It's an order. If you're in the military, your your commander doesn't make suggestions. (laughs) That's not how it works. A commander commands. He gives commands because he's the commander. And he says, this is an order. This is how you are supposed to do it. And that's it. End of discussion kind of a thing. That's essentially the, the, we see this passage in that light. He's saying, you're not called to live differently as an option. That's mandatory. That's something that you are called. If you truly are in union with Christ, you will live differently. So 
That's why he warns in verse 8. He says, he who rejects this doesn't reject man. He rejects God. So Paul tells them in chapter 3, verse 13, he says that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he saying in that? He's saying, look, the Lord's coming. Jesus is coming. Now, Paul expected him in that day. That's why further on in chapter 4, he says, then we, and he includes himself there, who are alive shall be caught up to meet with him in the air. So Paul is expecting Jesus' return. Are we living expectantly for Jesus' return? Yes, of course we are. That should shape the way we live our lives. I want to be found by him to be ready. That's what we've been talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. So he begins by urging and exhorting the Thessalonians to abound in love and then to abound more and more. Now the word abound means uh, to go over and above. So he says, look, you're already doing these things. I see in Timothy's report, I know that you guys are walking with the Lord. I, you're already doing these things. Now, I want you to keep reaching, keep progressing in your relationship with the Lord. Keep growing because, folks, the Christian life is not static. And we'll talk about that more, too. It's, it's, this is not static. We are either growing or we're not. So he uses, also uses the word exhort. And what that means is to strongly encourage someone. If I see a child that's standing too close to the road, I'm not going to walk up to that kid and say, hey, you know, I was just kind of thinking maybe you might want to just like move back a little bit before a car comes. And you know, no, I'm going to go up there and say, get out of the way. <laughs> you, you're, in, you're in danger. And so that's to exhort someone. It's to strongly encourage. It's to say, you need to get back away from that. And Paul, as he exhorts here, is talking about a lifestyle of sin. He says, you need to get back away from that. He's exhorting. He's putting, and there's a directness to it. And it's not the result of anger or lording it over someone. It's the result of loving them, caring for them. And that's his heart. That's his attitude as he writes these things to the Thessalonians. It's God's heart towards us. So the word urge here in the King James, that's the same as beseech. I think about Romans 12, 1, where, where Paul says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. So what that means, the word beseech means, I beg you, please. Or it could also be, I implore you. It's a very strong urging. I urge you. Pay attention to this, these things that I'm going to say, because it's very, very important. So his exhortation is, if we believe the Lord is coming, then we have to acknowledge that God wants something from us in the interim, before we come and we stand with him in glory. And the exhortation is this. He says, as you've received from us how you ought to walk, we've taught you what your walk should look like and how to please God. So as a result you should abound more and more. It's all connected. And we'll see that phrase again in verse 10, where he says abound more and more. It's the exact same phrase. Wording's a little bit different, but in Greek, in the original language, it's exactly the same. He wants to see these people abound. He wants to see their lives progress in the right direction. He wants to see this progressive sanctification worked out in their lives. And that's God's will for our lives as well. He tells them, this is the Lord's will for them. So, so therefore, if that's true, if, if this is God's will, then he says, you need to hear this. This is an exhortation 
to them. And by extension, folks, it's an exhortation for us as well, because we are called, we are exhorted, we're, we're urged, we're commanded to live differently, aren't we? So understand the background here, too. It's very important that we understand the context, the, the, the cultural context that Paul was writing in here. Um, the culture in, in the first century in their day was a mess. Uh, Paul's writing from Corinth. And there in Corinth uh, was the temple Aphrodite. Now, every night, every every afternoon or every evening, there were, and scholars differ on the amount, but that's, that's not important, Somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 temple prostitutes would come down into the city every day. And pagan worship in that culture was highly sexualized. Highly sexualized. And the Thessalonians were also surrounded by Pornea themselves. I mean, it wasn't just in Corinth. This was something that was common in the empire. We've looked at Paul, when he went to Thessalonica, Unlike reaching a Jewish crowd, he's reaching a pagan crowd. And these people were steeped in this stuff. And he knew it. And so he's exhorting them because of it. Uh, that was the norm. Pornea was the norm. It was generally accepted, and that was the way that people lived. It was completely acceptable for a married guy to have a concubine or a mistress on the side or to go see a prostitute. It was it, that it, Nobody looked down on that, frowned upon that in their culture. It wasn't uncommon for a man to have a boy, uh, and which is just, I don't even want to go there. So to sum up, there was a guy by the name of Edward Gibbons, and he wrote, I think it was a six-volume set. It's all one book, but it, it took six books to fill it. He, he wrote, uh, it's called The History and the Decline uh, of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. So in it, he gives five of the major reasons why Rome disintegrated. All right, so I'm just going to go through all five of these and we'll talk about it and apply it to our day uh, here as well. The first is the rapid increase of divorce with the undermining of the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society. These are his words. The second is higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money on bread and circuses. Three, the mad craze for pleasure, with sports becoming every year more exciting and more brutal. Four, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies when the most deadly enemy, the decadence of the people, lay within. Number five, the decay of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, and becoming impotent to guide it. So overlay that list with the world around us as we see it today. Doesn't take much to get there, does it? One in two marriages end in divorce. The family, the family unit, uh, is breaking down at an alarming pace. And, and both fringe groups as well as our own government, they're seeking to possess the minds of our children. Hedonism is rampant, living for pleasure. That's what hedonism is, living for pleasure. Yeah, how many times, and you know, folks, the media pumps this stuff at us all day long. You deserve it. Oh, you've earned it. You, this, this, is what, this will give you fulfillment and nothing else. I mean, it's just pumped at us all the time. Whatever the decadent thing might be, it's put in front of us all the time. 
living for no other purpose than to be entertained. Bread and circuses is the norm. We're seeing higher and higher taxes. More people than ever living off of what has become a welfare state. And to be fair, some have legitimate needs. We I totally acknowledge that. But millions don't. Our once powerful military has become consumed with the religion of wokeness. Instead of projecting power outwardly, we're obsessed inwardly with such thing as a man who dresses like a woman, has been given the title of admiral, and named as woman of the year. Social engineering, virtue signaling in the military are increasingly taking the place of combat readiness. Folks, there's an irrefutable connection between abandoning, uh, having at one time been one nation under God, and the disintegration of our society and our culture. Clearly living, spiritually wise, we're clearly living in the days of the Laodicean church, where worship has become entertainment, and moralistic, therapeutic doctrines of men have replaced devotion to the study of God's divinely inspired word. It's out there, and it's it's gaining traction more all the time. And folks, we are ripe for judgment. So, Paul now, he's writing to a Gentile church that's in the middle of that kind of culture. And he's saying, look, I'm telling you now, this is God's will. You need to live differently to please him. You need to live above all of that. In verse 3, when he speaks about abstaining from sexual immorality, as I mentioned, that's the word porneia, and it has a broad definition in their culture as well as ours. He's saying to hold yourself back from porneia which covers any and every deviation from what God has ordained in marriage between one biological male and one biological female, period. And that's not my opinion. I'm just reading what it says here. It's what he says. This includes fornication, which is heterosexual, sexual sin, adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, or any deviation, any sexual deviation outside of marriage. All of it is condemned by God. And this is a very strong passage, and he is clearly calling it out. And I, folks, I'm not gonna, I won't argue with people about this. <laughs> Again, I'm just reading what it says. And I'm not picking on anybody in particular, because it says here that if you reject that, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. That's what he says. Strong words. And look, we live in a culture much like their culture, that has embraced everything. He says, I want you to be separate. I want you to be set apart. I want you to live differently. So if someone is sexually active with someone other than their wife or husband, uh, and folks, and this includes pornography, whether it's real or it's fantasized, you're in sin. That person's in sin. It's not saying here that you're despising man's rules, but you're despising God's rule in your life. You're a vessel that's supposed to live differently for his purposes, for his glory, and for his kingdom, and not your own. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, is what the Bible tells us. And folks, we live in a really tough culture. I was thinking about this, and it's tougher than it's ever been. I am convinced of that because our society is disintegrating. Our culture is, we have moved so far from being a Christian culture. We are in a post-Christian era in our world. 
was thinking about the U.S. Supreme Court, how you have a, a group of people in Washington, D.C. making decisions like they have the authority to tell us what marriage is. Uh, marriage has been around for 6,000 years. And, you know, they don't get to define it. Uh, not in my book. No, not according to God's word. For you and I, marriage is one of the sacraments that comes from the fall. Before the fall of man, there was marriage. There in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's where he instituted it. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined together to his wife. And so if that's the origin of it, I don't need somebody else telling me that they can reshape that. That's not up for grabs. It's set in God's word. It's also a picture of Christ and the church. So, so don't tell me I have to believe what they say because I'm not going to believe it. I'm going to listen, not going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to what God has to say about it. The other thing about that is we can't afford to have a self-righteous attitude towards those who are living in, a, 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 for instance, a homosexual lifestyle. What I mean by that is that, folks, I am very clear. We, we do not try to catch the, or to clean the fish before we catch them. You know, if somebody if very often when somebody will say, oh, look what that person is doing in my mind or and sometimes I'll say it. It depends on the situation, the circumstance. I'm thinking they're just being faithful to their nature. Because if we have a sin nature and we don't, we have not been redeemed. If we have not been washed by the blood, if we have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, we are just simply going to live it out. There's no consciousness of sin in that person that's binging along out there in the world. Our job is to get them to recognize Christ. Our job is to get them to see. Jesus said, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the other stuff will come. Again, it's not, it's, I reject the notion that somebody, well, once I get my life together, well, then I'll come to God or I'll come to church or whatever. No, 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 no. You got to understand something. And as I shared before, we as Christians can fall into what I call the white hat, black hat syndrome. That's where we, you know, we go along. We've been growing in the Lord. We're, you know, we're going through the sanctifying process and all, and all of us are involved in that. And that won't stop until we get to be with the Lord when ultimate sanctification takes place. Well, we're going along. And so we can begin to drift in our minds and start thinking, well, I've got the white hat and all those sinners out there, they've got the black hats. And we have got to keep in mind that it were it not for the grace of God resting upon our lives every moment of every day, we've all got black hats. You've got to have that in your mind because it's not about getting self-righteous about these things because if you're involved in an aspect of the sin here, you're, you're the same. You're actually in a worse place than that person because if you're naming the name of Christ, you're inviting not judgment. That judgment was paid at the cross, but you're inviting heavy, heavy discipline. God will chasten those whom he loves. Hebrews 12 is clear, and that's what he does. So if you're caught up in a sexual lifestyle, you need to stop it. Because if you don't, you're playing with fire. And if you don't know the Lord, you're playing with the fires of hell. Because he says, if you reject this, you reject me. Very serious stuff. It's important that we understand that those sins are not what will commit someone's soul to hell not giving their life to Christ, will. The point is, um, you know, people, if people profess Christ and they want to continue to live in a sin-saturated lifestyle, they're rejecting. 
And I've talked to people, well, God told me that it's okay for me to fill in the blank. No, it's not okay. It's sin. And the point in all of this is marriage is a sacrament. It's sacred. It's God invented, God given, and humans don't have the right to change it. Uh, And that's the world that we're living in, folks. So what God is saying to us is, I so love that world. Yeah, we could get, we see all the things that are going on. We see the evil that's breaking out all over. And God's posture still, still is, I so love that world that I gave my only begotten son that whoever would turn, whoever would believe wouldn't die, wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. We have to keep the gospel in mind as we interact with a fallen and messed up and dying world. Now, verses 9 through 12, they form, I call it a, a, a typical Pauline sentence. That Paul, it's like he draws in a huge, great big breath, and then he just starts talking, and he doesn't, you know, there's not a period at the end of the sentence until he says a bunch. We're going to split it up into verses 9 and 10, and then 11 and 12. So uh, we'll keep going here. Verse 9, he says, but concerning brotherly love, and it, when he says that, he's implying, okay, he's just moved out of, this other stuff that people try to call love, but it's not. <laughs> he says, it's implied, it's not that other stuff. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase, that's the same word for abound, that you abound more and more, that you increase more and more. So what Paul's saying here is love one another. That's what should be happening. You shouldn't be involved in some unclean, godless and thing that you're trying to call love, and it's not. You should be involved in truly loving one another. Now, when we look in the original language, there are four words in Greek for the one word that we have in English for love. There is phileo, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, or brotherly love, and he talks about that here. There's agape or agapeo, depending on the use, and that is a divine love. It's a perfect love. It's a sacrificial love. There's also storge, which is brotherly love. I love my brother. I love my sister. That kind of, it's a family love. And and then there's eros, and that's physical love. It's where we get the word erotic from. So Paul uses two, phileo or Philadelphia and agape here in verse 9, uh, as he speaks, he's talking about, he says, concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, Phileo, uh, you don't have any need that I should, you're already doing it. He's saying, good job. Um, he says, the reason why you're doing it is because you've been taught by God to agape one another, that you are walking in that perfect love, that divine love, and through that, through the equipping you have by the Holy Spirit, you're extending brotherly love to one another. It's a beautiful way that he puts it here. So uh, in context to that sacrificial love, it's the polar opposite of a life that's consumed with living for pleasure or living to satisfy satisfy the lust of the flesh that he speaks of here. This is a great contrast that he's making. So the question then becomes, if God's love towards us is infinite, unconditional, and without measure, what's the limit to which I may grow in extending his love to others? There's a lot there. 
He wants me to continue to abound more and more. That's why he says it, because this is a love that we grow in. And as we grow in grace and knowledge, as we grow in his love, that our light so shines before men that men notice and glorify our Father who's in heaven. So that's the idea in verse 10, as Paul once again urges the Thessalonian Christians to abound more and more with regard to the love of God being poured out in their hearts. Verse 11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. <laughs> I bet you didn't know that was a but. Next time somebody says, mind your own business, say, oh, you're quoting the Bible? <laughs> this is right here. He says, and mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are on the outside and that you may lack nothing. So we study God's word so we can be stable souls in a temporary world. Folks, this is temporary. We are passing through. You, we are on a journey. We are sojourners. This world is not our home. And we are headed for our ultimate home where ultimate sanctification will take place. The curse will be thrown off. But in the meantime, he says, live quiet lives. What that means is to live, to settle down. Just settle down and live your life. You know, don't be busybodies or going about everybody else's business. Uh, <laughs> I love the saying that you can talk about me all that you please. I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. You know, that kind of a thing. So he says to work with your hands. And, and when possible, have the dignity to just eke out a living uh, while you're in this world. And, and that's not always possible. But he says, look, as a result of living this way, instead of living that way, by contrast, he says, you know, unbelievers are going to look at us. They're going to see intention and purpose and value in our lives. Why does he say to live differently? Because he wants our lives to be a witness. He wants our light to show so shine before men that people notice. They see it. It's part of what he's called us to. When I live differently, when my light is shining I might be the brightest light in the room, and, and that's because it's God's light that's being shed abroad in my heart. That's how it works. That's why he calls us to live differently. We live above the sexual standards of the world. You know, that this, this everybody's doing it kind of thing, or, or you know, all of the perversions that we see being openly peddled in our culture these days. He says, don't be, don't have any part in that. Why? Because it's sin. Paul's point here is they, they, people will see somebody that's different. Somebody that's, that's not living for themselves, not being busybodies, not dissatisfied, grumbling all the time. They see people who are actually stable, content, settled, not gossiping, working. People that are content with their lives. And folks, we take a lesson from the Thessalonians. They were going through a lot of stuff. They had heavy persecution. They had big problems, but they were filled with joy. Why? Because they were doing this. And Paul says, I recognize you're doing this. Now I want you to abound more and more. And by the way, stay away from that stuff you've been delivered from. You have no part in it. Don't let it contaminate, pollute your life, pollute your witness and bring chastisement upon you. If you know the Lord to bring judgment upon you, if you don't. So it's an excellent testimony. And that's the point here. So as we apply this, I want to look at a few things as we wrap up. Uh, the first is this. 
<laughs> there is no such thing as neutral. Got to understand that. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter talks about, he says, You therefore, in verse 17, Beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. He says, if you're running well, don't don't go backwards. In verse 18, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I remember being in, in, in Bible college. One of the guys one day, uh, one of my teachers said, you know, God's transmission doesn't have no neutral. <laughs> and I just thought, what an interesting way to say that. He said, you're either moving forward or you're going backward. There is no neutral. And I thought about that a lot over the years. And, you know, I think I agree with him. And what Peter is saying here is don't go back. Don't fall from your own steadfastness. Don't get led away by the error of wicked people. Don't get led into that culture that you've been delivered from. He says, but rather grow, go forward. Allow that progressive sanctification to be taking place in your life because that's what this whole thing is about. He's talking about our holification, our sanctification. How are you doing? In that area, are you abounding more and more in your life? I mean, just honest self-examination. Don't need to raise hands. But are you growing in grace and knowledge? That's a good thing if you are. Second thing I want to look at is are you living differently? In First Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says this. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Are you living differently? Yeah, I, who was it? Josh McDowell years ago said, if there, if there was, uh, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> and, and I mean, that's a convicting thing because, and, and folks, there are times where we we gotta we gotta know too. This is not a condemning message. This is it's God's word and it's important and it's powerful and it's sobering. But there, you know, the Bible says we stumble in many ways. The important thing is, is if God has identified an area of stumbling in our lives, that we fix it. How do we fix it? We turn to Him. We receive His grace and we move on. Keep in mind, this passage wasn't written to people out there bumping along in the world. It wasn't written to people and trying to get the world to live by God's standard without them being redeemed, without them being regenerated. That's a fool's errand. And we've got to stay away from that. We've got to be in a place where, in a posture where we can give people the love of Christ. My niece wrote me this last week, uh, and she said, you know, this person was... Um, uh, she said that because she runs, she lives in Hawaii and she runs a, a, a like a farmer's market thing. And she said, uh, this woman that worked with me was was stealing from me. And I found out, I counted the till. It was different than the inventory and blah, blah, blah. And she said, what do you think I should do, Uncle John? And I'm like, oh, there's a question. <laughs> and so I wrote to her and and I was, uh, I've I've prayed for this girl for a long time. I was really impressed because she sent me back a picture from her Bible. And it was basically saying, somebody stole from you, they stole from you. Allow that to be something that you give them grace on. Don't, and she said, I'm not going to track this woman down. I'm not going to tell her, you know, 
She said, she knows. And I'm going to tell her how much it hurt me because I thought she was my friend. And I thought, well, well that's a great answer. And, and again, she quoted the scripture. I don't remember exactly where it was. But the point in it was is that she was not expecting this person to act a certain way when she knows that she's just out there in the world. Yeah, people, they offend us. Sometimes they they do things that are wrong. Sometimes people get under our skin, don't they? Have grace. Understand the grace of God that's been poured on in your life and have that grace for other people. As I mentioned, it's not up to us to clean the fish before we catch them. Uh, but it does fall on us to live differently as sons and daughters of the king. Last thing I want to look at is this. Condemnation is earned. Grace is free. Condemnation is earned. Grace is free. So while passages like this are, they're hard hitting, sobering to apply to our own lives. We got to keep in mind that God's made wonderful provision for us, uh, for those who have been ensnared by sin. You don't have to be stuck in condemnation. I'll tell you what, the enemy is so deceitful, so crafty, he'll lead you into an area and, and then he'll condemn you for it. Don't live in condemnation. Um, if God's dealing with your heart, bringing conviction over an area of sin in your life, don't walk out of here failing to do business with him on that. Allow him to do the work that he wants to do. Don't be condemned. You don't have to be. What, what, so what's involved? How do you deal with that? You simply turn. You turn from that area, plead the blood of Christ over it, and as the prodigal son, come back to your, come back home to your father. I love that. In Luke chapter 15, you see this son, he takes his father's inheritance, goes out and squanders it on reckless living and all of the things we're reading about their culture and our culture here. He goes out and he just dives headlong into it. I mean, he does a swan dive into it. And he gets to the end of it all. And I love in that passage in Luke 15, my favorite words there are, it says, when he came to himself. What does that mean? That means as God was dealing with his heart, as he came to recognize, you know what? This is sin. And he says, wow, you know, my father's servants, they're eating better than I am. I'm sitting here eating pig food. And for a Jew, that's kind of significant. And, and I just need to get back home. And, and we're told in that story that his father saw him while he was a long ways off. And, and so did he go out there with a, with a rod and beat his son? You stupid kid. What are you doing out there living like that? No, he didn't. It says that his father ran, fell on his neck and kissed him, said, sell the fat calf, get the robe. You know, we're having a party. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that takes my dented up, screwed up, sinful life and says, I want to do something with you. I want you to live differently. I want you to live for the king and for the kingdom. And I want you to adopt values that are consistent with that because that's the only way that your light's going to shine. And let me bless you in the meantime. It's about turning. Just like the prodigal son. He said, you know, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go home. And he did. And yeah, that's a geographical thing in that. But that's as simple as turning in your own heart. As God identifies those things in your life. And in my life. It's a healthy thing to repent. And that's what we're talking about. To turn. He loves you. He wants good things for you and for me. He truly does. He beckons through passages like this 
for us to turn from the ways of the world because the world is calling your name from the time you get up till the time you go to bed. There are things that, that cry out for you, cry out for our attention, for our affection, for our devotion. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to live like that. I want you to live for me, for my kingdom. I want you to cooperate with the sanctifying work that I want to do through the agency of my spirit in your life. As he puts his hand on an area, he says, I want you to turn from that. I want you to embrace me and I want you to live differently. That's how he works in our lives. That's what he does. That's the part of the powerful work of sanctification, this progressive thing that we won't perfect in this life. We are all utterly reliant upon his grace. And until we get there, when we are ultimately sanctified, when the curse is thrown, I can't wait for that day when there will be no more sin. So when we come to the Lord, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. As we as we cooperate with his sanctifying work, we're delivered from the power of sin. And in that day, we'll delivered, be delivered from the presence of sin altogether. What a glorious time that will be. And in the meantime, what he says, I want your heart, I want your life, I want you to live differently in a really messed up world because that's where your light's going to shine. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your your word this morning. Oh, Lord, um, I just want to thank you for your grace. Lord, you know my life, you know the areas, you know each of our lives here places where we struggle perhaps have have not gotten it right, and yet we know that your hand is continually outstretched, beckoning for us to simply turn from those things and to embrace you afresh. So I pray that for each of us, Lord, as you work in us, as by your Holy Spirit, you're cleansing us, making us holy, setting us apart, causing us to live differently. That we could, we know, Lord, we can only do that through your power and by your spirit. So we yield to that this morning. We thank you for it. And we just pray, Lord, that our life would be a blessing, pleasing to you as we go forward from here. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.